What is it you want? Real estate. It's the Red Hot Real Estate Show, where we can all find out how's it going for buyers and sellers in the real estate market. I have died and gone to real estate heaven. Looking to move? Hoping to sell? Call in with your questions to real estate expert Mimi Shoneman with Remax Results. I'm going to go out and buy a house. Here she is, your host, Mimi Shoneman. Thank you for joining us here on the Red Hot Real Estate Show. I am Sonny in for Miss Shannon. I wanted to remind you guys that for any reason you miss any part of the show, you can check out the uh, Red Hot Real Estate Show on Podcast One or wherever you get your podcasts. And also to remind you to download the My Talk app because you can get rewarded just for listening. Get the details at MyTalk1071.com. And today we are in with Mimi Shoneman and Phil Olson and if you have questions for the show or just you know you have a comment or want to share your experience that has something to do with today's topic please call us at 651-641-1071 good morning Mimi and Phil good morning good morning (laughs) so what are we talking about today well Phil and I we want to talk a little bit more about the second home market um, there's so much demand in Minnesota for second homes, lake homes, cabins, if you will, um, because of the beautifulness of all the, the glorious lakes around here, lakes and ponds, lots of water. And guess what? Not just Minnesota, but Wisconsin. Exactly. There are so many opportunities out there for people to get into affordable second homes, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about here a little bit later in the show. But I, I've got three examples Starting off at 167,000, all the way up to 413,000. And they're phenomenal properties, and they're all less than two hours' drive time. Mm. From the St. Paul, Minneapolis area. Absolutely. Before we get into it, we got to do the NMLS number. Oh, let's do an NMLS. (laughs) NMLS 238103 Branch 9288590 and Company NMLS 150953. You have that memorized or do you have that written down somewhere? I write it down every Uh, time, Mimi. (laughs) Yeah. Way too many numbers. Too many numbers. And and just for the listeners out there, the My Talkers, what is that number? That's my federal license number our branch federal license number and our company federal license number. So you number. know you're dealing with professionals. And why are you required to disclose that, may I ask? Because I am considered a broker and a banker. I do not work directly for the bank. The loan officers that work with the bank have an NMLS number, but it's the same number for all the employees. I have to actually go through lots of CE classes. I have to have a federal test, state test, FBI background check, FBI financial check. I mean, the list goes on and on as to, in order to do what I do, uh, they basically look at everything, which so, is which is okay with me. Well, you bring up something that's really interesting, and I think that maybe uh, for some of our new listeners, they may not understand, what's the difference between a broker and a bank? Uh, a broker and a bank. A bank has their specific products, and let's just say conventional, FHA, USDA. I work with up to 100 different lending institutions, and I'll throw some names out, Citibank, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank. The list just goes on and on. Well, every one of those institutions have their own proprietary or their own specific products that I also have. The difference is, is we underwrite internally for the banks, so we don't actually deal with the banks. We just end up selling that loan to them. So basically, when you come to me, it's kind of like going to Old Country Buffet. You've got you've got a lot of stuff, to a, lot basic, of a lot of choices compared to if you just go to your local credit union or your local bank. OK, well, there you go. And so you mentioned that you are a broker 
And so brokers are like a smorgasbord. And so if I wanted to go to big box bank A Mm -hmm. that you see on the corner of every city in the state Mm -hmm. and big box bank B and online box bank C. And they're going to sell me, a consumer, what they have to sell. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, I'll show you what box A bank has. I'm just going to show you what box C bank has. Is that about right? That's correct. Okay. So mm-hmm. when you come to you, Phil, as a broker, you get to you get to shop from all of these different banks. Basically, I'm able to present them as many possible options as there is out there. And that kind of leads me to a kind of a story that I have for you is here this last week, I had a client call me for a second opinion and they were working with a credit union slash bank. I'm not going to say who it was. And they said, uh, they're offering me a 5% down conventional. Here's the rate. They told me I wasn't a first time home buyer and I needed to have $17,000 cash reserves. Well, I presented them, believe it or not, with a first-time homebuyer program because there are programs out there that you don't have to be a first-time homebuyer program to qualify for. The buyer only had to put 3% down. The mortgage insurance was cut in half. The rate was less by a full quarter of a percent. They were able to keep seven grand of their own money. In the end, they saved $102 per month. And the only thing they had to do different for me than they would have done for the lending institution is they had to take a three-hour online class for a full 80 bucks, And I'm saving them 1200 bucks a month. Awesome. A month? A month. Wow. $102 a month, $1,200 a year. I'm saving them. And guess what? They said, I'm so happy I got pushed to call you for that second opinion. Yes. And so speaking of second opinions... Um, if you've got an opinion from a bank or credit union or any other online institution, we are challenging you to get the Phil Olson second opinion, second look pre-approval. No obligation, right, Phil? Doesn't cost a thing. And believe it or not, normally I can do it in about 15 minutes time. Now, the first initial quote that I give you is just going to be based on what you're going to tell me. Uh, the second second time around after I've reviewed all your financials and I've got a full application that I'll be able to hone it down to the exact penny. But I'm normally pretty close. Very rarely do I lose. Every now and then I have to tell the client, you're getting a great deal. Yeah. Stick with them. Awesome. But at least they got that second opinion and at least they know all their available options out there. So Phil, how many first-time homebuyer programs would you say are available to consumers? Oh, probably... hmm. Probably around 20. Wow. Do you have any idea about that, Sonny? Yeah. yeah. And I think I mean, there's so many derivatives of first time homebuyer programs because you got FHA, you've got conventional, you got VA, you got USDA. All, all three of those can be used for first time homebuyers. Then you've got it's home ready. Then you've got home possible. Then you've got Minnesota housing. Then you've got conventional Minnesota housing, FHA Minnesota housing, VA Minnesota housing. I mean, the list goes, (laughs) it goes on and on. And each one of those are different. And each one of those have different criteria, but they also have different benefits. So the question is, is what is the consumer doing and how can I match up a program that's going to give them the biggest bang for their buck? Okay, so one of the things that are I think is a myth for folks out there is I don't qualify for a first-time homebuyer because I've actually bought a home before. Mm-hmm. And so what are the criteria for folks to get into first-time homebuyer programs? Some if, of the basics. All right, so let me give you an example. 
consumer went through a foreclosure five years ago, been renting for the last five years. They always come into my office and I say, so are you a first time home buyer? And they say, no. I go, when was the last time you owned a home? Was five years ago. I go, you're a first time home buyer. The criteria is three years, but guess what? There are other programs out there, be it Home Possible and Minnesota Housing, be it the Step Up program, that you can ha- you could have owned a home and sold it today, and I can help you buy a home tomorrow as a first-time home buyer with down payment assistance as well. Wow! And I think that no, I think that few people know that those options exist. Correct. And then and then they go, well, I make too much money. Well, if you take a look at the Minnesota Housing website, you're going to see that your standards probably go up to about eighty-six thousand, ninety thousand. Well, I've got a program that goes up to one hundred and forty-four thousand. That's called the Step Up program, and you can actually get fifteen thousand dollars in down payment assistance. And so, Phil, since we're talking about second home markets. Are any of these programs available for second homes? Second home is not a first-time home buyer product. Okay. It does require 10% down. The standard standard is, is it would be a conventional home, all right? In some instances, it might be able to be used as a VA loan if you can prove that the second home is really becoming the primary residence versus the other property. Well, that's that's really great information. So when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about second homes, how you make that happen, what the requirements are. And we're going to talk about some real live examples of homes that are available right now. Super hot smoking deals. Right, Phil? You're tuned into the Red Hot Real Estate Show here on My Talk 1071. I am Sonny in for Miss Shannon, sitting in with Phil Olson and Mimi Shoneman, and we're talking about buying second homes. If you have a question about today's topic or you just want to share a story, please call 651-641-1071. Yeah, I just want to remind everybody that we're open for all topics, real estate and mortgage. If you don't, aren't interested in a second home, but who isn't, um, just give us a call. And I want to also remind everybody that Phil Olson is our one of our mortgage experts with Amec Home Loans, and I am a licensed realtor with Remax Results in both Minnesota and Wisconsin. And I forgot, I have a little bit of a promotion here today, and that promotion is for anybody that calls me and sits down with me for a second opinion, I will automatically give you a $100 gift card. That's going to go run all the way till end of July, and guess what? I'll, I'll pay you $100 to come and meet with me. Let me see if I can give you a better deal. More than likely, I will. Oh, wow. That's $100 an hour, Sonny. Mm-hmm. You going to sit down with him? <laughs> well, we I, already so. got, I was going to say, we yeah, already got a house yeah. right now. All so right, then, fine. Let's learn some more about All second right. homes today, and so, then we'll see. Phil, what's considered to be a second home? Um, I think a lot of people think you've got to go really far away to make that to be a reality. Standard rule of thumb is you should be at least an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half away from your primary residence. Okay. Uh, can it be a place where children live for higher education? Uh, no, it cannot be for children to live in higher education. So in other words, you can't have a house in Plymouth and then go buy a house in St. Paul, call it a second home and have your kids move into that property. And while they're going to the U of M, that okay. doesn't work. But okay? let's talk about, okay. So that, because of the reason for that is because of the distance is not far enough. Is that correct? Um, Distance is one thing, 
but it also has to be, you know, quasi a second home. Okay. You having your kids live there with other people paying rent would be considered a rental property. Okay. Uh, now I have had people where they live in, let's say Michigan and they buy a second home here in the twin cities and their, their children live here in the twin cities. And they're commuting from Michigan to the Twin Cities all the time to stay near the kids. Now, that would be considered a second home. Now, any property that would be on a lake, in the woods, on a river, has hunting land, you know, a getaway out of the state, that would be considered a second home. Can it be a summer or winter residence? Absolutely. So, in other words, you live here in Minnesota and you want to buy a home down in Arizona, that would be considered a second home. Um, can you have two second homes? No, you can have one primary residence, one second home, and then you can have up to 10 investment properties for a total of 13 properties. All right. Are there loan limits? No, I can do go all the way up to 202 million dollars for a second home. Uh, can you do it with VA, USDA, or FHA? No. Okay. Can a seller contribute closing costs on a second home? Sure. The sellers can pay up to 3% of the closing costs based on the purchase price. Can you, can you rent out a second home? Sure. You can rent out a second home. A lot of people don't, don't know that. You can do what's called Airbnb. Mimi, what is that? What is an Airbnb? I have a client that does it right now, and she is in love with the program. So she's got a story and a half house in St. Paul. She lives on the primary level, which has got, you know, all the main things, the living room, the kitchen, a couple bedrooms and a bath. And then the upstairs, she rents that part out. And then the basement, she's got a bedroom and a little kitchenette and everything. She rents that out all the time, stays booked almost constantly. And so, yes, there's going to be Airbnb rental restrictions or Mm -hmm. rules and guidelines in different cities have different rules. So you want to check that out before you do that. But that makes a property income producing, right, Phil? Correct. And so what can people do with income property, income producing properties as far as using that money to qualify for homes? Okay. If it is an income producing property and you can show a two year history of that income producing property, you can actually count that towards your income and you could actually use that income to help you qualify for further investment property acquisitions. Okay. So what sort of documentation would somebody have to present you a two year history of what? They would present it is a, a two year tax return and within the tax return, there's what's called a rental schedule. And in the rental schedule, it breaks it out what their income is, what their depreciation is, what their costs were to maintain the property. And then, and then there shows a bottom line and that bottom line always carries forward to page one of it is the 1040, which is your federal tax return. So you're just looking for federal tax returns with documenting of that income. Correct. And as long as the federal tax return has been done correctly. Now, guess what? There are people out there that have rental properties and they don't claim their rental income. And they've sat down in my office and they said, Phil, but we have rental income. And I look at their tax returns and I go, well, you're not claiming it. And they go, well, is that a problem? I go, yep. Unfortunately, that's a problem because it's unclaimed income. And if you're not claiming it on the tax return, it cannot be used for qualification purposes. Awesome. Well, let's talk about one of these hot, hot properties that we've identified that are within two miles or within two hours max of the main part of the Twin Cities. 
Um, what have we found for under 200,000, Phil? I found two properties. Both, believe it or not, are in Danbury, and I didn't spend a lot of time doing a, a big, giant shirt, uh, search. But one is 167000 The other one was 169009 I'm coming up with a mortgage payment on the first property at 1094 per month with 10% down. On the second property, it's coming in at 1072 per month. And if people have ever heard of it is Tabor Lake or Loon Lake, I looked them both up. Both great fishing lakes, both small properties. Now, one of these properties was a three-season home. Let's talk about a three-season home. What is it? Do you know what it is, Mimi? I do. <laughs> tell, tell, tell our Three-season home means you can't live in it all four seasons or otherwise you freeze your hiney off. There you go. There you in other go. words, definition. The the uh, heating system is and the water system is only designed for the summer months. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people will call a bank. They may call a credit union. Believe it or not, there's not a big appetite for financing a three season home. That being said, I have the ability to finance three season homes. And I go directly through the federal government to do them. There are no overlays. Banks have overlays. What is an overlay? They have further restrictions to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that they place on the consumer. And it might be such things as, well, your credit score isn't high enough. Uh, You're not putting enough down. Uh, You need to have more reserves. We don't have any overlays. I go directly by what the federal government says. And the standard rule of thumb is... 10% 10% down, six six months PITI reserves on your primary residence. And Phil, PITI is? Principal interest taxes and insurance. So okay. basically, you take their full payment and you take the new payment of the second home, you multiply it times eight. That's how much they have to have in reserves. Now, guess what? Reserves, don't be afraid of reserves. Normally, it can be handled with a 401k, an IRA, and all we're doing is showing the documentation basically to meet a reserve requirement. But by me being able to go directly to the federal government and do this loan, you're looking at 10% down, and there you're getting into a nice, both of these are nice little homes, two bedrooms, one baths, both on lakes, both in the woods, great property. Now, guess what? That's only an hour, it's a, it's 105 miles away. So as the crow flies, what, an hour and a half to get there? Now, guess what? For those that would la- rather be up in the Brainerd Lakes area, I found a phenomenal property. It's on Round Lake, which is connected to Gull Lake. And Mimi, we're going to talk about a little bit about what what brings value on a second home here in our next segment. But Gull Lake is one of the premier lakes here in the Twin Cities. This property is four hundred and fifteen thousand. It's sitting on three acres, wooded, connected to Round Lake, which you have access to Gull Lake, which is a phenomenal lake. And for those that are thinking about buying this, buying a house and being able to get away, you're looking at a two-hour drive to get to the Brainerd Lakes area. And what's your monthly payment? $2,311 per month. Okay, let's talk about a couple of details that you said. So this house is actually a beautiful home, and it's currently actually active and available um, and for a really, really good price. So if somebody lives here in the Twin Cities and they say, yeah, that sounds like a deal. I want to see that house. We can arrange for that for you. But 
what if they think, well, I'm not I'm not going to be able to go up there every single week. That's, you know, I've got all that stuff. Can they decide to rent that out as a resort and still consider it a second home? Why not rent it out here in the winter to the snowmobilers, to the ice fishermen? You could probably get rents of a, probably about a thousand dollars a week. Well, guess what? Multiply that over four weeks. There's four thousand dollars. Your monthly payments twenty three eleven, and do that three months out of the year. Believe me, there are so many people that would love to be able to rent this property out. It's a four bedroom, four bath. Yes, gorgeous home. It is After, gorgeous. It's gorgeous. All right, and it's for only four hundred and fifteen thousand. So don't be afraid of a payment of twenty three eleven when you can rent it out. And believe it or not, there are rental companies out there that handle the whole thing for you. So now you've got your place between May and September, and now you rent it out the rest of the year. Talk about a money making property. This is how what you call wealth building, correct? And how you build wealth for your family going forward by being smart and leveraging. All right, it's break time, you guys. What are we going to talk about next? We're going to continue talking about this whole time, second homes. All right, if you have questions or comments, please call in at 651-641-1071, and we'll be right back on the Red Hot Real Estate Show. Back to Red Hot Real Estate on My Talk 1071. I'm Sonny in for Miss Shannon. In with Mimi Shoneman and Phil Olson, and we're talking about second homes. If you have a question, comment, concern, please call us at 651-641-1071 and we will gladly take your call. And so Phil, we were talking during the break about there's a difference between a good second home versus a bad one. Or maybe not bad, but one that is less attractive. Mm-hmm. And so some of those things that you need to think about when you're looking at any property really is some of the main expensive things that might go on. And some of the things that you may need to know about in that particular city or township that you need to check out before you do it. So, uh, you know, a lot of folks think, well, it's just a three season little cabin and I can just knock that thing down and I build my little mansion on that little cute lot that's overlooking the lake and have my, you know, a little estate building right there. But maybe, um, maybe that piece of land is not going to support the type of building that you've got in mind. Correct. And so you want to definitely check with the city authorities and make sure that the setbacks are good. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you can do with the shoreline what you've intended to do, that that can be approved. And you may actually have to get permits to do some of these things. Correct. And so it's really important, too, if you are thinking, you know, of, of locating a knockdown, if there are such things anymore up there. But what can you do and what can't you do? Setbacks are really important. Um, and they don't What's take a these, setback, maybe? how far off of the water that the city or the township would require the building to be. And so maybe the current house sits a little closer to the water. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you knocked it down, there's new guidelines that no longer are grandfathered in. Maybe you've got even a further setback. And maybe um, if you're thinking that you're going to take it up and go up as opposed to out, maybe there's a limit on how high up you can go because it'll obstruct other people's views. Mm -hmm. And so there's things like that that you want to think about. I'm going to just go kind of cover a few stories that I've I've seen over just the last year. Uh, Second home was found to be in a flood zone. And and a flood zone would cause the consumer to pay extremely high flood insurance because the water in the last 100 years broke the banks and actually jeopardized the property. So they were in a flood zone. My buyer 
decided to make an offer. And the seller said they weren't in a flood zone. Well, they weren't paying flood insurance anymore. Okay, so they didn't think they were in a flood zone. So by the time we got the flood certificate back, I had to call the consumer and say, oh, by the way, you're going to have to carry flood insurance. And it killed the deal. Next, a lot of these properties have, it is a well and a septic system. And on some of these older second homes, three season homes, you're going to find that sometimes that the septic system and the well are no longer functioning correctly, which on your standard well and septic replacement, I'm normally seeing figures somewhere between twenty eight to thirty five thousand dollars. Right, let's clarify that. So, how much to replace the septic is somewhere between ten and forty, maybe even fifty thousand. Correct? It can be. It really depends on the size of your lot. Where, if you're connected to a lake, there are specific rules and regulations as to where that septic system can be the type of septic system that can actually be used. And I know it, it doesn't sound like we're talking about mortgage financing right now, but what we are talking about is there are specific rules and regulations that have to be followed in order to finance a property with those specific types of issues. Right. And when it comes to well, clearly you're going to want to take that very seriously. Um, how how deep does the well go? What's mm-hmm. the purity of the water? Um, how do you how do you look at that? And ha- from a mortgage perspective, Phil, what do you look at for guidelines for water and well? Well, in a conventional, a conventional loan does not require it is a a well inspection. That being said, I've had a few clients that have chosen to get a well inspection, and I'm so happy they did. They had to pay for it themselves, and one of my buyers found out that there was actual fecal matter leaking into the well, and believe it or not, that's not good. (laughs) All right. Now, it was able to be fixed by what's called shocking the system, and you have to basically shock the well to get it back in order. In some cases, it might require that a complete new well be redrilled, in a different a different part of of your land okay so i mean there's a lot of things that when you look at a property i would tell you just don't look at the property itself be it the house look at the land what's on the land what's the clarity of the water of the lake what's the bottom structure of the lake is the lake uh clean what is the fishing level of the lake. The better the fishing lake it is, the better it will hold the value of your property because of demand. It's supply and demand. And the more expensive it will be. Of course, it will be more expensive. But at the same point in time, if if you're looking to buy a property that's a second home and the lake has issues, I'm going to use an example. Great lake at one point in time still has issues today. White Bear Lake. Right. White Bear Lake had an issue with its aquifer where it wasn't feeding the lake and the water levels dropped. And the water levels dropped, from my understanding, somewhere between 15 to 20 feet. It was significant. It was significant to the point that the values of the properties on White Bear Lake dropped. I heard I heard a number. It was dramatic. 40%. It was very dramatic. 
Um, but it has started to come back. It has started to come back, and, and the city's put into place some specific, it is pipes and water systems into some other aquifers that's now feeding into the lake. But that just goes back to when you're going to buy a second home, you have to ask the question, is it in a good location? And it goes back to buying a business. Location, location, location. The better the location the more the property will hold its value. Secondly, if you're thinking about renting it out or an Airbnb, it all goes back to location. What what does the property bring to other consumers that will help drive revenues? Let's talk about the properties that are located in these resort areas that aren't water-facing. Mm-hmm. Um, folks that want to move up to that area, they don't really necessarily want to be on the water yep. for a variety of reasons. I've had people say, I really don't want to be directly on the water because of the noise of the boats mm-hmm. and the noise of the people that are there that are romping and roaring during the summer. I'd rather have some seclusion from that. How about how about being within eyesight of the lake? And believe it or not, if you're able to see the lake, Frequently, I'm seeing a $50,000 to $100,000 reduction in price of that property. And for that person that wants to fish, say, Gull Lake or one of our pristine lakes up in northern Minnesota, and you're able to view the lake on a daily basis, and it takes you a whole two to three minutes to get it into the water by driving it down to the landing, what's the big deal? Right. I mean, that's that what people look at is they're looking, well, I can't afford being right on the water. Well, how about being close enough to the water to where you can still enjoy the lake and what it all offers, but at a reduced cost? Right. And if you've got, you know, toys, boats and snow snowmobiles and jet skis and that sort of thing, you can store that right there on your lot. Correct. Most of the time. But you've got to check with the homeowner association and see what their rules and regs are. You're going to find that there's a far fewer restrictions on homeowners in northern Minnesota and southern Minnesota than if you're going to buy a lake home or a river home uh, here in the cities. Exactly. So when we come back, we're going to continue talking about some of the things that you might want to consider before you buy a uh, Second home and Phil's offering this most generous second opinion for a hundred dollar visa card. card. Sit down with him for a painless second opinion and basically like making a hundred dollars an hour. There you go. And we're also taking your calls at six five one six four one one zero seven one. We'll be back right back with the Red Hot Real Estate Show. Welcome back to the Red Hot Real Estate Show here on My Talk 1071. I'm Sonny in for Miss Shannon, and we have Phil Olson and Mimi Shoneman, and we are talking about everything that revolves around purchasing your second home. Yeah. If you have questions, please call at 651-641-1071. So, Phil, we were talking uh, during the break, and I asked you a question, and I can't even believe it, but I stumped you. Yep, oh, you did. man. Okay, so... Um, I so I wanted to know if you could finance a three season home that had an outhouse, but it didn't have indoor plumbing, indoor toilet, indoor toilet. I would and I what what I would tell you is that is a phone call I would have to make to either can, uh, maybe Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or I would talk with my underwriting manager, or or I'd look at the guideline, but. That's the first time I've ever been asked that question. So hmm. you got me. Okay. Um, chickens. You can have chickens. No, I'm kidding. Um, 
So what about a house that's got a bathroom, but it also has an outhouse? Does that have any impact on it? No impact. Okay. Well, outhouses were pluses for them, right? Correct. Okay. All right. Now you got a biffy outdoors <laughs> instead of having to run into the house, right? I know. Right. Perfect. Um, and I also thought, well, you know, you've got these great programs like USDA, which is rural development, mm-hmm. which is zero down payment. Yep. But you already said in the first segment that you can't use government programs for second homes. But let's talk about how maybe somebody could work around that and take advantage of some of these great programs. I've I've done it many times. If if the consumer is going to tell me they're going to live in the second home more than 50 percent of the time. Well, now that becomes your primary residence. I then convert your current primary residence to a rental position. And now. And nothing happens. It's it's just basically paperwork. As long as I can qualify the consumer with their current mortgage payment and the new mortgage payment on the second home, all right, we now make that second home their primary residence. Now you can buy that property with as little as 5% down, 3% down, FHA, USDA, VA. Uh, I mean, there's so many different options. The key is, are you going to live in that home more than 50% of the year? Well, now that becomes your primary residence, which then opens us up uh, to other products. And that's why when, when, when I tell people I'm a mortgage puzzle solver, my job is to look at what are you presenting me and how can I come up with it is within the guidelines, within the rules, ways that you can get a better deal. Well, Let's talk about folks that have got equity in their house, mm-hmm. their primary residence here in the cities. And they've always dreamt of having a second home, whether it's here in Minnesota or Wisconsin or it's Arizona or Florida or wherever they've dreamt that they would like to live. Um, you got to keep in mind that Phil's creativity requires that you be uh, able to live in both half half the time. Right. Correct. So it's going to need to be fairly close. Yeah, I mean, I mean, drivable. I mean, if you're an hour and a half away, that's considered that's considered to be a second home. But if I'm converting your other property into a rental position, here's how that transaction would look. Consumer doesn't have the thirty grand, but they've got they've got one hundred and fifty thousand dollars equity in their primary residence. We use a home equity loan on their primary residence. I help them get that first. Now. Maybe it takes three, four, five months to go find that second home. We use that home equity loan of thirty thousand towards that two hundred thousand dollars second home. Well, that that covers the twenty twenty thousand dollars down. We now make that your primary residence, and I finance it as a primary residence. I put your other home in a rental position, which means. Your first mortgage and your second mortgage, along with your new second home, as long as you qualify at less than a 50% debt-to-income ratio, you'd qualify. So if you've got equity in your home and and you were like, I can't, I just need to wait until I save up enough money, you have options to pull some of that cash that you've built up with the property appreciating over the years. Correct. So, So that's a really great way to be able to figure out how to finance it. And, and I mean, if you, if you take, say, a 6% interest rate on, let's just say $30,000, all right, your, your monthly payment that you're going to make on that second mortgage is probably going to be about 90 bucks a month. So I borrowed 30, 30,000 for a $90 a month payment, but now that takes care of my down payment. So now I can buy my second home. 
All right, we have a phone call from one Jean, and their question is about being a primary resident. Good morning, Jean. Yes, good morning. Good so morning. What, what was your question? Well, a question for Phil. I'm really enjoying your show. Um, I own two residences outright. Okay. One is in St. Paul, and one is, excuse me, three and a half hours away in southwestern Minnesota, kind of hunting area yep. in the fall. Yep. Um, my son resides in this home in southwest Minnesota. He just gives, pays me utilities. Yep. Um, and I am wondering, I'm thinking it might be an advantage to count that as a primary residence versus the, the home that I own in St. Paul. Okay. Is there a way to do that, or is that not feasible? Do you live in the southwest Minnesota property? Well, I go down there regularly, but I can't say that I live there. Do we have a mortgage on both properties? No. They're there's free not and clear? On, there's no mortgage on either one. Okay, so the only difference would be at, at a taxation level, which is called homestead versus non-homestead. All right. Okay. All right. So yes. the, the only difference you would gain would be determining which one has a higher tax rate, be it a yearly annual tax rate on both of those. And then ask yourself the question, you'd have to call the county to determine which one of those would be a homesteaded property. Your primary is your homestead. Your second home or your investment property would be non-homesteaded. The, the question would be, which one do you gain a better tax advantage on? And I would talk to your tax accountant on that. Okay, that sounds like a very reasonable thing to do. Um, I didn't realize that there was such a thing as owning a second home and calling it a primary residence. Yep. So, now, and, no, another yes. thing to consider, okay, another thing to consider is if you ever decided to sell this home to your son, in southwest Minnesota, you want to make sure that you have a very active paper trail. You want to make sure that you have a lease agreement in place with him, even oh. if it's a small lease agreement. And you should make sure that he pays you monthly by check or by some form of means that can be tracked because you have what's called uh, when you when you sell a property to a relative. OK, you, you yeah. create you create what's called. What's that word again, Mimi? I'm trying to remember the word, and, and, and right now my brain isn't working. But uh, you want to make sure that he's paying you monthly for a period of more than six months. If he does that, then he can finance the property at the bare minimum, which it would be like 3% or 3.5% versus 15%. Yeah, and also, if I may add, that you want to record if if he's if you're thinking about selling it to your son or family member you want to definitely make sure that you're reporting that to a credit bureau so that that helps them establish good credit um and that will help him as well interesting yes this has been a learning experience for me and i heard you say something about a 401k you can actually take loans against that and there's no interest you have to pay no interest you have to pay on a 401k as long as it's an active 401k an inactive oh. an inactive 401k really turns into what's called a quasi uh it is ira so you cannot borrow against an inactive 
uh, 401k, but as long as it's an active 401k with his current employer or your current employer, yes, you can borrow up to 50% or the max of 50000 all right? And then you're going to pay interest to yourself somewhere between 3 to 5%. And depending on the plan administrator, you're looking at a two-year to seven-year payback. That's what's called terms. And that would be something you would, would talk with the plan administrator on. Yes. Well, thank you very much. This has been well, very know, educational for me. You know, Gene, I think you should take Phil up on his offer to sit down for a consultation. He'll give you a $100 Visa card, and you can pick his brain all day long. Oh, well, I think I would like to do that. <laughs> well, thank you. We'll let Hope get your information, you. and Phil can call, call you this week. Um, great questions, right, Phil? Awesome. Yeah, and so one thing that popped into my mind that I wanted to make sure I shared is, is the location of your land. Um, you want to make sure that you understand, like when you look online, sometimes it can be deceiving, but where does the land go? Because I've had people that had part of their land be in the middle of the lake. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is that really usable, but yet that's part of the lot? And Mm -hmm. so you want to make sure that you understand where the boundaries of the property lines actually are and ingress and egress, being able to get in and out of the property without having to go through somebody else's lot is Mm -hmm. very important. Um, Whether no matter if they say, yeah, it's no problem. I've always let them come across. Those are the kinds of things that you you take into consideration when you're trying to figure out valuation. Now, Phil, um, one more thing I want to throw in there. It's called clear cutting. All right. People can look at at land that has lots of timber on it, lots of trees. All right. FYI, you have to figure out where you're going to put that put that house. All right. You got to figure out where you're going to put that that well and that and that septic. It costs a lot of money to clear cut big trees. Yeah, about five or six thousand minimum. So, Phil, how do people get a hold of you that you need to reach you? By all means, they can get a hold of me at 651-238-6748. And my website is www.callphilolson.com. And you can always reach me at mnredhotrealestate.com. Thank you guys for today. Have a great Sunday.